You are listening to Holy Heresy, a podcast that explores the evolution of faith in these challenging times. Whether you have a lot of faith, a little faith, absolutely no faith, or are of another faith, it is our hope that these podcasts will help you find your place in the ongoing conversation that has been evolving forever. This series on banned books is brought to you by First Congregational Church of Los Angeles. I love the gospel story from this morning, in part because fishing was such an important part of my life growing up. My father could cast a line as well as anyone I have ever seen. It was an art form for him, and I could sit on the bank and watch for hours, which is probably why my mother sent me with him all the time. It was the only time I would sit quietly. Of course, I wanted to fish with him, and as I may have told you before, he had special waders made for me so I could walk out into those beautiful rivers of the Northwest and fish right beside him. From the time I was a little child, I knew river fly fishing very well. But there was another kind of fishing that intrigued me even more. Spending my summers in the piney woods of East Texas, I was intrigued with the men who would line up on the bridge on the river and would cast their lines in search of catfish. Growing up where the Snake and Columbia Rivers came together meant an abundance of trout and salmon. But in the summers, fried catfish in East Texas felt like a delicacy to me. Of course, being my father's daughter, I wanted to learn how to catch catfish. So I made what I thought was a reasonable request. I asked my grandmother to make my uncle take me to the bridge, and I would be able to ask those men to teach me how to fish for catfish. It never occurred to me that in the 1960s in East Texas, that was not possible. As I wrote these words yesterday morning from a memory seared into my life story, I decided to go online and find the name of that river and that bridge in Tyler, Texas. I went down several rabbit holes before realizing there was no bridge over a river in Tyler. There are some rivers close by that I found and several lakes but there are very few spots one can find catfish. So I took this portion out of my sermon until I brought it back. In going over my notes about our band booked for today, To Kill a Mockingbird, I realized I had so totally romanticized this memory that it was hard to see it in a different light and to realize the memory was problematic. Perhaps it is rather like what we have done with the Pulitzer Prize winning book that was voted the best book of the last 125 years by the New York Times Book Review. This classic novel is well known and greatly loved. It is a coming of age story that plays out in the 1930s in a small Alabama town. The adolescent protagonist grapples with violence, mental illness, injustice, and racism. 
The book was inspired by Harper Lee's own experiences, and it would become a common vehicle for teachers to discuss race in America. But now it's a frequent target of challenges. From parents concerned over its depiction of racist language and white saviorhood, as well as the potential to make students feel defined by its portrayal of the people in that time and place. So some of you may need to take a moment to breathe. Today's message probably should have come with this disclaimer. If you absolutely love to kill a mockingbird, this message may have ideas that will offend you. Others of you who are not die-hard Harper Lee fans may be wondering once again what the heck is going on here. I thought this sermon series was about what fundamentalist Christians were doing to keep children in schools from reading literature that tells the truth of the past, opens our mind to the present, and gives us instruction about the future. Well, history tells us that banning books never turns out well. And yet, when we romanticize literature that was written in a time and context other than our own, when we think only from our own perspective, when we fail to do the research that would tell us whether or not what we remember is true, we run the risk of running slipshod over others, others who have a vested interest in the telling of a story like this. When a second book by Harper Lee was published a few years ago, a book titled Go Set a Watchman, lovers of To Kill a Mockingbird were shocked to see their beloved main character, Atticus Finch, portrayed as a racist. After all, the film character of Atticus Finch was voted by the AFI as the greatest film hero in the history of film. Other heroes in that top 10 included in order Indiana Jones, James Bond, Rick Blaine from Casablanca, Clarice Starling from Silence of the Lambs, Rocky Balboa from all those movies, and Ellen Ripley from Aliens. There's a lesson in there somewhere about how Atticus Finch got in there, but I'm not sure what it is. One writer insisted if there was a vote for the greatest hero of the 20th century in literature, Atticus Finch would probably be named number one. This is so disturbing for many people who have loved this book for so long that Reverend Irene Monroe wrote an article titled, The Atticus We Don't Want to Know. Mainstream America came to believe that To Kill a Mockingbird was one of the top books of social justice in the 20th century. It is, after all, reasonably brief, easy to read, well-written, and it features this heroic, semi-mythical white man. Yet there are many other books of serious literary province written by black authors that should be at the top of that list. 
Black Boy, Native Son, The Invisible Man, The Autobiography of Malcolm X, several books by James Baldwin, The Color Purple, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings, and Anything by Toni Morrison, but especially her beloved masterpiece named Beloved. None of these books have received as much cultural acceptance as To Kill a Mockingbird. As one journalist aptly pointed out, To Kill a Mockingbird has been admired more by whites than by blacks, due to the literary troupe of the white savior. For all these reasons and more, To Kill a Mockingbird has been added to some list of banned books by individuals who do do believe it does harm. The school district of Burbank, California has taken it out of the required reading. It still exists in their library. Many of us have not taken the time to understand the context in which this book was written. Many of us have seen only one perspective in the way the book portrays issues of racism, and perhaps most damning, most of us didn't even think of the white saviorism at the core of this book. We have forgotten that Jesus was not a white savior. So massive is our mythology, our art, our language around who Jesus was that we fail to remember Jesus was a dark-skinned Jewish man with dark hair and dark eyes. Jesus did not have blonde hair, fair skin, and blue eyes. Jesus was not a white savior, but white culture has time and time again converted Jesus into who they are, not who he was. In the gospel reading today, which took place after the death of Jesus, Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel of Cana, Zebedee's children, and the two other disciples who were at Lake Tiberias all had dark skin, dark hair, dark eyes, and they, of course, were all Jewish. These were people who had lived with oppression, with the boot of injustice on their necks for a very long time. Their history was filled with stories of enslavement, of kingdoms falling and bondage that only varied by the oppressor and the degree of their harshness. And during that night when the fish weren't biting, they did not need a savior who knew nothing of their plight. They needed someone who understood their suffering. And so Jesus did what Jesus always does. He showed up for them. Today, after this time together, we will hold the 154th annual meeting of First Congregational Church of Los Angeles. As the first female senior minister of this church, I am passionate about its history. When the church was formed on July 21, 1867, at the home of Mrs. Amanda Scott on San Pedro Street, there were six charter members. Five of them were women. And you all need to thank your lucky stars for those five women. 
There is a book on the history of First Church, Light on the Gothic Towers. It was written from a particular perspective at a particular time. It is a romanticized portrayal of a minister with a vision. While its writers believed it would stand the test of time, it has not. The church at that point was racially problematic, politically problematic, gender, creed, and culturally problematic. And all of that had held this church hostage for too long. Sometimes it seems the best course of action, as people tell me, to evade those lapses and those prejudices. But I think this morning we can say without reserve that enough time has passed. On a weekend, when people lost their lives in a racially motivated hate crime in Buffalo, New York, it is time for us to tell the truth. Thankfully, God never leaves us where we were. God is always calling us into a new future. So yes, we're taking up those issues, not to wholly reject everything that happened over these 154 years. We still want to honor and love what is best about First Church, but we can't do that without talking about what was worst about it. As I read more of our history this week, I spent a great deal of time learning about the minister that actually built this cathedral. I really had never paid much attention to him. He was very overshadowed by the person who came after him. Reading about this man was, for me, like Jesus showing up. His tenure was a foretaste of who we can become again. And I can't wait to tell you all about him if you stay for the annual meeting at 1230. <laughs> I appreciate where we are in this time in our history. I am grateful we are facing our past. I love that we are becoming the church we have dreamed of. And yes, there is so much work to do, but I believe we are becoming the people. Those four women, those charter members of First Church, prayed for so long ago. Together, may we walk into the future as we honor their desire and our liberation. May it be so. Amen. If you have appreciated what you have heard, we invite you to join the conversation in person or online each week. We also invite you to make a financial gift to help First Church continue being a community that reminds us how much we are loved by our Creator. To donate, go to fccla.org give. 
and share this podcast with the people you know that need to hear they are loved exactly as they are.